Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with the biographer about his or her work. This week, a conversation with the British music writer and composer Philip Clark. His first book, Dave Brubeck, A Life in Time, was published by DeCapo Press in February 2020. Clark told me via Zoom from his home in Oxford that his fascination with jazz and Brubeck traces all the way back to his childhood. Yeah, well, it was simply my, you know, my dad is a painter and artist and you know, every single night. I mean, it probably in reality wasn't every single night, but that's a sort of a family mythology now. He used to listen to Time Out and he'd paint sort of late at night listening to Time Out. And I was, his studio was next to my uh, bedroom. And I would actually uh, keep myself awake just to hear Blue Rondo a la Turk. It just, at the age of, you know, my daughter is six now and, um, you know, I probably... By that age, I was a bit of a veteran in these matters. It just, it just instantly spoke to me. Just, the, just the sound of it. It just seemed a magical sound and a sort of, you know, very sort of warm and inviting sound, and yet not a sort of Disney and sugary. It just seemed, you know, sort of very intriguing. And you know, I grew up in the north of England, and this, you know, this sort of, it was, it was, it was like this message was sort of, was sort of beamed from the other side of the Atlantic. You know, from sort of. Um, and it just and it just instantly it, 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 it just instantly I sort of you know sort of got me um where it mattered did um, it make you do you think it informed your decision to become a musician a composer yeah, I I completely mean, yeah, completely that was the yeah I mean there were other factors but I mean that was um you know that was the sort of road uh, to Damascus a moment I mean that was you know that was the thing that started it all off and then when I started getting you know you know bits of money when I was in my teens it was you know I sort of started this uh, this habit that I have that I have yet to shake at the age of a uh, 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 48 about going into second-hand record shops and um <laughs> so yeah no it, I mean that was the start of it and it uh, completely uh, drew me in and it's never sort of left me really and so fast forward many years through yeah. your education your PhD you're mm. writing about music and you run mm. into Brubeck or you 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 interact with him in 1992 was the first time yeah well first thing was I was I, I was uh, studying a composition I was studying to be a composer and he he happened to be appearing with these uh, quartets uh, near my university and I simply I mean in those days 92 and I think I probably sent him a cassette which we did in those days um, of a piece I'd written and it, and it was actually a piece about uh, uh, Thelonious Monk as it happened um and i sent this and said you know um you know i told them i guess i told them you know a bit of the back uh, uh, story and i was coming to the concert and it would be great to meet him and this is the thing i've written and i didn't hear a thing at, at back and i went to the concert anyway and in the interval i spotted his uh, manager and i went up to him and introduced myself and immediately said oh yeah yeah he said dave really really dug your tape and and it, and it only arrived with we were literally leaving, you know, to come on the road and the postman arrived and sort of, you know, sort of Dave sort of grabbed all the jiffy bags and put them in his suitcase. So that's why he didn't answer. Um, and after the concert, his uh, wife, Iola, uh, took me backstage and he, no, he, I mean, he really, I mean, it, 
I mean, it wasn't just he'd sort of got the tape and played it once. He'd really listened to the piece and he'd sort of worked out some chords and he, and there was a sort of duffed up old, a, a, a duffed up old sort of, you know, sort of, sort of um, upright uh, piano in the dressing room and he sort of played a few chords and, and he said, I keep in touch. And, you know, I walked out of there, you know, you know, they're sort of feeling on, on a cloud nine. And then he said, I keep in touch. And I thought, yes, you know, that's really going to happen. You know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> but, the next, but the next time I had something ready, I sent it to him. And, you know, a week later or whatever, a, a, a reply arrived. And it all kind of started from that, really, this sort of dialogue about uh, music. And, you know, I was, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was just a completely anonymous uh, music student, as you know, a, you know, a, you know, a fan who, who, who I got in touch. And, of course, he didn't. You know, he didn't need to, you know, accommodate me at all. You know, I mean, I would have been very happy had he signed my, you know, copy of his latest SCD and shook his, you know, and shook his hand and just spent a few minutes with him. But I mean, you know, he chose to, you know, he chose to sort of keep the dialogue going, you know, and that's how it all kind of started. But at that point, it wasn't occurring to you that you might become his biographer or was no. it? No. When did that seed get planted then? When did, when did it occur to you that you could do that? I think um, you should do that. I mean, it's so difficult to. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's difficult to remember absolutely. But but I can remember that at the, at the moment that I crystallized every every sort of big a, a birthday. So the seventy fifth, the eightieth, and the eightieth fifth. He did a he did a sort of gala concert with the LSO at the Barbican in central London, and I'd written the book for the eightieth concert, and then again for the eighty fifth. In the eighty fifth, I think you know, I think at that points it was um you know it, it was it was it was sort of under you know whether there'd be a 90th was sort of um you know under doubt because of his age and he was getting increasingly frail and you know and, and the and the LSO sort of put a lot of effort into this 85th that booklet and I and I wrote it all and a booklet, um, where was the booklet was it published or you mean was it for it, 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 recording it, it was the program book of, I of see concert. Yeah, yeah, and I think I just said afterwards, after the concert, you know, it'd be great to do a book. And he sort of, you know, he he sort of looked and and sort of went, hmm, yeah, and then sort of agreed. And then he said, but we'll have to talk. And at that at a point, um, Dave and Iola were collaborating on an autobiography. Um, and uh, you know, sort of the deal was that I, I I was to keep off the you know, the biographical stuff and just write a book on the music. You know, they kept on writing at the, at the autobiography, but then Dave had died and Iola died, and um, I, you know, I tried to start a, a, my book a couple of times and got, you know, and got kind of nowhere as as one does with a first book, perhaps. By the time he passed away, you had interviewed mm. him. You had spent quite a lot of time well, with him. Yeah, two thousand three, I think it well, was. Well, he died. He 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 died in two thousand and twelve, um, and I'd interviewed a couple. I'd interviewed him a couple of times, and then in 2003, uh, it was the sort of it, it, it was sort of Easter of uh, 2003. He was doing an extended British tour, and um, I emailed. Did I email or whatever? Anyway, I you know I, I emailed them and I said it would be you know you know could I uh, possibly sort of shadow at the group, you know, for ten days and to write a big article for a jazz a magazine I was working for. At that at that time, and you know, this reply I came back said, you know, you know, that would be great. You know, you know, sort of join us on board the, you know, on board the bus and sort of uh, drop in and out as you want. And I did that. And this article was, you know, it was sort of three thousand words or, or whatever. 
and we started uh, talking on the first, you know, the first day, which was a trip at at, at Brighton on the on on the Sussex coast, about sort of two hour drive out of London, and we started there talking. And then on the way back, we talked more, and that sort of became the routine. We you know we'd talk you know to the gig and back from the gig. And I don't want to give the impression I was sort of you know I was sort of there um, sort of constantly at the ten days, but you know I, that I was there a lot, sort of you know. So I came away with, with about sort of ten hours worth of interview and of course you know but the way these things work the, the tour I finished on a, on a on a Wednesday and the piece had to be filed on the Friday so I had sort of you know sort of uh, a day and a half to write sort of 3,000 words and just sort of sat there <laughs> <laughs> and um, I didn't I mean you know I knew there were certain you know there were certain things that had to be in this article and I sort of uh, fast forwarded the rest of the interviews and I didn't really, and this is perhaps a slightly uh, to my shame, I didn't really listen to probably well over three quarters of the stuff I got um, until I did this uh, book. It was all sort of, you know, it, it was all there in in um, sort of, you know, sort of old fashioned uh, TDK sort of D90 cassettes, which I recorded on a Walkman. <laughs> and, and my wife kind of uh, bollocked me and said, you, you know, you're nuts. You must have, you know, you must have got these are digitalized. If anything happens to them, that's the. <laughs> but they're still sitting there. I don't know where. Yeah, they're, they're just down there. So, um, so yeah. So, I, I, I mean, most of the stuff I didn't listen to until I did the book, and and it was very curious, sort of listening. Almost, you know, this was a like two thousand and three, and listening all, the, you know, all those years later, it was just like a time capsule. And this is a very sort of a trivial thing, but I remember asking him a question, and he got a bottle of uh, of a spring water. And he and he opened it, and it sort of it had sort it, it, it obviously being kind of jumbled around it, and, and the person it made a sound like a sort of ice, like that of ice, a break, and it sort of cracked and went. And I sort of remember that sound, and I switched on the tape, and there that sound was <laughs> ten years later. I know it's and it's you know I mean it's completely irrelevant to anything really, but it just sort of it was it was just amazing, you know these things were just a sort of yeah we just sort of step, just sort of step me sort of back into memory really. Well, and it's not irrelevant because I've written several books now where yeah. I didn't have the access to the person or the person was deceased. So mm. I'm intrigued by um, the similarities in my experience and um, in yours, given the different vantage points that we've had mm. as biographers. And I'm sure people listening to this will think the same thing you were talking about. Do you know, I always say that memory is fallible? Because, um, you know, someone in their 80s may not remember something from that little time capsule that you had in those audio tapes or that might be available in a printed publication or a video. Uh, mm. And you actually wrote that memory was fallible regarding dates and names and um, clarifications of, of details. You write that mm. in, your, in your first chapter. Mm. Also that Brubeck also had a tendency, like many musicians, and I would say people, to mm. repeat a settled account of a story that as he mm. told it yet again, um, wandered further from reality. And mm. that's a fascinating thing too. We all, you know, whether we're Dave Brubeck or just regular people like me have set stories that we recount mm. in our personal biographies. So I was intrigued to read how you addressed that uh, disparity. Um, and also just how you dealt with the fact that you admired this man so much for so long and then here you are sitting at his feet drinking water with him <laughs> i mean that's an incredible yeah. thing I, I literally sharing his mineral water 
Um, well, there's a lot. There's, there's a sort of lot to um, you know to unpack there. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think uh, let's just sort of take it at one stage at, at a time. I mean, I think you know, as regards sort of uh, memory and his his his, his uh, memory, I I found. I mean, as soon as we got to the timeout, I think it was like this sort of. Um, Almost like the sort of the sort of gaze appeared over his eyes, as if like, oh god, I've got to talk about this again. And um, it was probably you know a late at night, and and it and it wasn't at all that he was sort of you know you know being sort of standoffish. It was just I think he you know he just talked about. It. I mean, you can imagine how you know how many times. I mean, after he died, all these. Um, you know, every single, you know, kind of local television station in the US, you know, sort of put up their kind of uh, two minute uh, YouTube clip of their kind of local kind of stringer reporter who, you know, who had gone along to some to some concert in Wisconsin or or Delaware, whatever, and asked, you know, they'd obviously been asked, they'd obviously been told to ask Dave Brubeck how I take a five happened and, you know, he sort of dropped it out and all those were there and it was like, you have to say it again. And I think, uh, 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 it was a. It was a, a. Partly that he didn't want to sort of misrepresent what had happened, but also he couldn't really remember what had happened because you know you know that kind of summer in 1959 take five it wasn't a take five it was just it was just another session and um, they had this sort of curious thing that didn't quite work at first and then eventually they kind of phoned it down to something that did work um, and he basically I mean. I mean, what I found was he had this sort of settled uh, a, a story, which was uh, that the you know the famous rhythm, the uh, you know that rhythm uh, that was the warm up that his drummer used before concerts, and his saxophone player uh, uh, Paul Desmond that would improvise over the top, and that was you know the story he he had told. And then I sort of get the rehearsal tapes, which have just been uh, uh, released incidentally. Uh, last week for the first time officially so you know, as, as people can hear them now and I listened to the rehearsal tapes and the drummer is, is playing a completely different a, a rhythm altogether so um, you know his his a memory of, of what had happened all those years ago and and, and, the, and the reality were completely different so, and also I think there's this thing um, you know he himself was confused he told you know he told the he, he told the story as so many times and it had been sort of churned around you know, various magazine articles and bits of it had been, you know, bits of it had been embellished, bits of it had been misunderstood by interviewers or kind of messed up, you know, by sub-editors. And, and I think it got to the point he couldn't remember, you know, quite honestly, you know, sort of what was, you know, what had actually happened and what he thought had happened and what people had told him might have happened and what people had written in an article that that was wrong and had been sort of repeated. And it was just this sort of huge sort of jumble. And also there was this there was this very sort of definite uh, thing with uh, Dave. He was always much more interested in the next uh, project and what was you know sort of you know so what was uh, coming up uh, rather than uh, what had happened, you know sort of uh, forty uh, uh, fifty years ago. And and of course he adored uh, uh, Paul Desmond and all the members of that original uh, uh, group. Um, and you know he 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 would. There was a, there was a part of him you know, just you know sort of loved you know to reminisce about um, you know sort of you know sort of uh, um, uh, uh, Paul Desmond's uh, sort of witticisms or, or, or whatever. But, but there's another part of him, and uh, you know particularly as he got into his 80s and he sort of realised you know that time was becoming limited. He was he was he wanted to talk about you know 
the next album or the album he's about to record or the you know or, or the big orchestral piece he he written there rather than you know this this thing that had happened all the all those years ago. Did you have to convince him? You 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 mentioned that you had mentioned writing the biography, and he sort of said, "We'll talk about it." Mm. What kind of process did you? But by the time he passed away, was it a set? guarantee that you were going to be the official biographer or how did that yeah yeah I think um yes he finally I mean, understood around sort of a 2010 2011 I thought I did right I just you know if I don't get this thing done it's never going to happen um and then sort of end of 2010 um uh, you know my my wife had became pregnant with our first uh, child, and I thought, right, I'm going to, so, you know, he was, he was a Jew to be born in the March of 2000 and, 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 and 11, and, and I thought, right, but you know, between kind of autumn and you know March, I'm just going to sort of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, so write this huge synopsis and get it out there. And then he was born at, at, at two months early and was uh, terribly sick for the first year of his life, and so all those, you know, all those plans that went out the window. And then he got better, and my mum got really sick so so sort of life you know sort of life that took over and then yes and then Dave himself died at the you know at the, you know so right at the end of 2012 just a day before his 92nd birthday um and then the next sort of milestone after all that had happened was it, it was his um centenary well it, it's his centenary this year and again I knew that you know you know basically I had to sort of hit that you know you know, a book had to appear in 2020, which meant, you know, sort of getting stuff together sort of 2015 to 2016. And that's when it sort of finally crystallized. And the thing that really sort of made it sort of work in, in the end with the title, as soon as I had the title, it didn't seem so sort of nebulous or, you know, well, you know, a sort of abstract, a life and time. And it just, uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think of the title. It just sort of popped into my head in the supermarket it just sort of you know bang there it was I didn't have to think of it and as soon as I had the title just the just the structure just seemed to unfold it was extraordinary it was like um it was just like a sort of a permission uh, to write it it's a classic and, case of someone thinking about something for literally decades and yeah how it crystallized in that bizarre moment in a grocery store That's yeah and I and, and I found an email which I sent which I sent to a friend which I might delete which is which had some terrible 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 early attempts at, at our titles which I'm far too embarrassed to, to mention to anyone um and you know thank goodness I didn't go with any of them uh, <laughs> um and there, yeah felt- there were a couple of there were a couple of sort of early starts of the of, of the book and, and the first uh, 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 chapter is a sort of um yeah, the first uh, uh, chapter sort of represents a corner of, of, of one of those early ideas sort of vastly expanded and uh, rewritten. And that's sort of, you know, and that's how it kind of be, uh, uh, began. So once you actually started in earnest and it yeah. took that title to inspire you to get to that point, mm. how what mm. was the trajectory? You came here to California, where I am right now, to go to the yeah. archive. Yeah, in Los Angeles, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you went yeah. north, right, in, up in... Uh, University. Well, I came, yeah, I came, I did this big research trip and um, I came to Los Angeles initially and went to see um, Eugene Wright, who was the bass player in the classic uh, a, a quartet, who is 97 now. So then he was sort of 94, uh, 95. And that took a, you know, that took a lot of effort 
at, at, at a setup. It's very difficult to get to see, you know, someone of, of that age. And but I kind of knew he was the last surviving member of the of the of the of the, of the quartet. And, and I sort of knew even if, even if it was just to sort of turn up and shake his hand, I had to, you know, I, I had to make uh, the pilgrimage. And, uh, the, you know, the kind lady who sort of looks after him, you know, she said he has good days, he has uh, bad days, you might get uh, 20 minutes and you might want to, you know, it might not be worth sort of flying, you know, from London to Los Angeles just for 20 minutes or you might get, you know, three hours. And I turned up and and I and I kind of spent all afternoon there with him. Uh, basically, he was on, you know, he was, he was on tremendous, uh, uh, you know, he, was, he, yeah, he was on a, 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 a tremendous uh, form. And you know he was he he's that sort of age where you know he's where you, you know you're talking about something that, that happened in 1964 and then suddenly he sort of rewound back to 1946 without sort of telling you and you know so I had this sort of a slight sort of jumble of an interview it'd been a bit of a mosaic that I had to sort of you know sort of pick apart and put together but um, I mean really in terms of the book that is a you know it, it's all sort of I mean it begins in the present tense with you know, sort of me and Dave in 2003, uh, you know, sort of reminiscing. And then it goes sort of backwards and forwards. And then meeting Eugene in 2000 and probably being a 2017. Yeah, 2017. That kind of brings it up into a kind of different sort of a present tense. You know, I mean, so it really is now. And he's, you know, at his sort of grand age, we talk, you know, we, we sort of reassess, you know, some of the things that have reported earlier in the book, you know, particularly in terms of their traveling in the deep south and the racism and and uh, Eugene, you know, sort of not being allowed to, you know, to uh, stay in the same hotels and all, and, all, and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, sort of Dave uh, cancelling our concerts and dealing with sort of redneck uh, promoters and all that kind of stuff. So it, was a, it just became a way of, you know, sort of introducing all these sort of different sort of layerings of time. And of course, in, in terms of a book about Dave, a Brubeck, um, a time is a, a very important uh, these sort of uh, these sort of range of different time. So it made real sense to you know to actually sort of have that uh, to have that kind of quality sort of written into in, in, into the book. Is accessing the Brubeck archive something that's difficult? Was it something you had to really negotiate, or was it open? How did that? Um, I mean, it's slightly changed now because it was at the University of uh, a Pacific, uh, which is which was Dave's alma mater and indeed Iola's alma mater. That's where they met, in fact. And it's now well, the the pandemic has slightly held things up, but it's about uh, to open again at at a Wilton, a library in in uh, Connecticut, and and, uh, and uh, Wilton is where the Brubecks moved in 1960. So it's sort of you know they uh, for various reasons the Brubeck family have decided to sort of take it in house. Mm-hmm. So. When I went, it was in Stanford, in uh, not Stanford, um, Stockton, which um, w- w- which was kind of great actually because I did the you know I did the thing in Los Angeles with uh, Eugene and then I stayed overnight and flew to Oakland, mm-hmm. and and uh, Dave in the nineteen fifties uh, you know lived in Oakland and had this amazing house he commissioned in the Oakland Hills and I went I went there and then. Drove to Concord, which is where he was. He was uh, born, um, and actually kind of stood. Well, the house is gone now, but I stood on the spot uh, where he was. He was uh, born, and then you know went to uh, Stockton after uh, uh, after that. Yeah, I mean that's quite a journey to make. And and yeah. you were there for how long in the in the I, archive? I, 
I spent a whole sort of week, uh, basically. They were incredibly accommodating. I can't quite remember the official opening hours, you know, but they said, you know, because I stayed on campus and I just sort of got up with, you know, with the crow, I basically arrived and sort of, you know, you know, took 10 minutes off to grab a sandwich at lunch at time and then was there until six in the evening and just spent a week going through as many papers as I as I could and scores and just, you know, getting my iPad and, and, and uh, photographing you know, as much as I could. And then, um, you know, when I got home, it took, I mean, it took weeks and weeks and weeks just to process it all. And I sort of, um, yeah, I sort of made a little sort of catalogue and a note, a book of, um, you know, the, you know, the number of the photograph and, you know, and, and, and what it represented. Um, but I kind of knew, well, I sort of perhaps sort of fantasised about, you know, I might be able to go back at the end, but, but of course, you know, that didn't happen. There was just no time. And, um, and there's certainly no cash left, that was for sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and they were very, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, anyone could go uh, to the archive. I mean, you know, you had to have a reason. You couldn't just sort of turn up and just fancy looking at stuff. But, you know, any anybody working on articles or, um, you know, you know, books or, you know, sort of radio, you know, to, TV or documentaries, you know, I, you were welcome to do so. You had to just email and um, and ex- and, ex- and explain. And actually, Dave Brubeck's son sort of sent a like a like a testimonial on my behalf just to just sort of clarify I was I was a person that you know I was a person of sort of serious intent. And of course, I had you know I, I had the book I had the book I contract by that point. So there was you know so I was I was sort of clearly a sort of a you know you know a genuine uh, you know genuine a person. The reason I ask is because yeah. you know, some people listening to this, you know, every the questions that people have when they write biographies, and you are a first-time biographer, um, are how do you get access? You know, you may love a subject, but how mm-hmm. do you get the access? And so you've had a lifetime of access from various vantage points, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. I would think the capstone of that would be able being able to mine and sift through this repository. There are many people, of course. Uh, people choose as biography subjects who don't have that kind of archive mm. so uh what would you I mean, say I don't know how I mean I don't know how I would have um yeah I mean the thought of you know someone you know I mean if someone rang me tomorrow and said you know okay there's a fifty thousand dollars that we want a biography of Duke Ellington in two years time I mean it would definitely come down to whether there was any you know you know sort of previously unreleased or unseen letters I could look at or Otherwise, it's sort of just it's you know it's a sort of just um, you know sort of rehashing the material that you know that's already there potentially and um, and of course it would be a great pleasure to write something on Duke Ellington but unless there's a sort of you know you know reason to do so a sort of purpose behind it I think I would find that pretty difficult actually and what was interesting about you know the archive uh, was I found uh, letters that you know. I'd done this interview in 2003 and other interviews, and I found that stuff in the archive that either, you know, sort of uh, sort of backed up by what Dave said or at other times, you know, sort of flat, I contradicted it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people, particularly sort of a side men he'd had in the 50s, he wouldn't uh, talk about. And I sort of realised, because he was still alive in 2003, and when I got to the archive in 2000 and uh, 16 I sort of realized you know at 2017 I I realized you know you know why because um there was a, there was a bassist and a drummer who were suddenly pulled from the quartet because they were both in you know in trouble with drugs and um and they were still alive at that time and Dave I felt he couldn't you know he couldn't talk about it and it was interesting on the 
on the coach, there was a moment he almost sort of went there and he sort of stopped himself and Iola kind of, you know, I could see Iola sort of saying no, almost. Or, um, and then, yeah, and then I went to the archive and, and I sort of realised, you know, sort of why. <laughs> All those years later, he didn't, he didn't want to, he didn't want to go there. He, he didn't want to, he didn't want to rub, you know, he didn't want to rub anybody's noses in it or sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, humiliate anybody or, you know, sort of, you know, the, I mean, those stories in a way, you know, so sort of weren't his stories set to tell. And, uh, you know, well, that you're raising also another interesting point, which is, you know, you're a detective when you're writing a biography mm. and you have to make the judgment call to wade through material uh, that may or may not be directly relevant to that person's life. Um, mm. or, or like you say, if you feel that you or he had the license to discuss that, I had that with a book I've written um, where there was a very complicated family surrounding one of the people and you know i did not they were not public people and they weren't that wasn't necessary to reveal in the story mm. so i guess what i would ask you just as we start to you know wrap things up mm. what would you tell someone as if they embark on a biography project for the first time i mean you this is the product of a life's worth of work for you mm. Mm. um what what would you say about this experience um it sounds like you enjoyed the experience uh yeah i mean it's i mean it sort of drove me nuts you know yeah. <laughs> that's the honest answer okay keep yeah. going with that <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it's well it's like all well, you know it uh, there were there were you know i mean you know writing is i like that it's sort of you know it's sort of absolute hell and then as soon as you hand it in you want to do it all over again you know i mean you want to do a next the next book you know yeah i mean this book was the book um i was sort of always destined to write in, somehow um and um i just think you know if you know i think perhaps everybody you know you know everybody perhaps has you know, ha you know has, has that, that book in them that you know they're, they're destined to write and just a really if you feel your name is on a project you should just sort of go and you know you just you just uh, go and do it um but, i mean don't ex you know i mean certainly don't expect it you know to be easy um it's it's you know it's i mean you know, I had I had sort of twenty years worth of journalism before I started at the book, and I thought you know writing this book would just be like a, you know like a big article, and um, and it's no, <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's it's absolutely not. It's um, it reveals all your inadequacies and well, or, or my inadequacies in my uh, vulnerabilities. It just like every every day you're faced. You know to confront your sort of terrible sentence of construction and <laughs> and, and all that stuff, and you've got some editor kind of cracking the whip behind you, and and uh, that was particularly in this case because there was a centenary at, at beckoning, and it and it and it just had to be out in 2020, so there wasn't that particularly sort of you know just for much uh, leeway in terms of that. Now all that sort of said, it's incredibly satisfying, um, it's incredibly stimulating, and when you get sort of, you know, sort of a two sort of historical bits of evidence and you put them together and you sort of prove something, it's just, you know, it's just absolutely, it's just, it's just absolutely sort of mind blowing. You sort of, you find some nugget of history that hasn't been, you know, hasn't, hasn't been revealed since the 1950s. And you think, you know, sort of, wow, you know, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's really exciting. That was author Philip Clark talking about Dave Brubeck, a Life in Time, published in 2020, the centenary of the late jazz musician. 
This conversation was recorded via Zoom on December 10th, 2020. You can learn more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio. 